In the 1970s and 80s, I grew up in Toronto, the younger of two boys. Like most boys, my brother and I fought a lot. Despite this, it seemed excessive one night when he unexpectedly swung down from his upper bunk onto my chest and started pummeling me with his fists before passing out unconscious on the floor. I remember yelling, Mom, Bernie's dead. And then a flurry of activity occurred, which I don't remember, which resulted in my brother being taken away by ambulance officers in the middle of the night. His asthma had overcome him, and with his last breath fading, his only thought was to wake me up as definitively as possible so that I could potentially get help before he died. Many decades later, I remember sitting with my youngest daughter, Evelyn, in a desert in the Middle East, about as far from Toronto as you could get, temporally, culturally, and geographically, listening through my stethoscope as her lungs progressively shut down in deadly asthmatic bronchospasm. I don't know the names of the ambulance officers who whisked my brother away that night, men who almost certainly inspired me to take up the profession I love. Nor do I know the names of the nurses and doctors who cared for him in the hospital that night. But I do know the name of the man who saved his life. And surprisingly, he was the same man who saved the life of my daughter decades later on the other side of the planet. His name was David Jack, and he was born February 22, 1924, in the Scottish town of Fife, as the youngest of six children to a coal miner. Sir David Jack was the man who invented salbutamol. Hello and welcome to the paramedicine.com podcast. I'm here to take you on a paramedic trip, translating research into practice. My name is Mark Kolbeck and I'm at the ACU recording studio in Brisbane, Australia. This is the All About Pharmacology podcast, and in this second podcast of the series, we'll be learning all about salbutamol. In this podcast, I'm going to be giving an overview of the drug. I'm going to be talking about the history of salbutamol and asthma. Then I'm going to go through the mechanism of action of salbutamol, which means I'll be describing what it does in the body down to the receptor level so that you can really understand what salbutamol is all about. I'll also be reviewing how to administer salbutamol and some of the indications and precautions that you need to be aware of. At the end of this podcast, we'll have covered all you need to know to be able to use salbutamol safely and effectively as a paramedic. Welcome to the podcast. History of Asthma Salbutamol is primarily, although not exclusively, a drug that is used to treat asthma. Asthma, as a disease, has been known to humanity for well over 10,000 years, and during most of that time, our ancestors thought it was due to an imbalance of humors in the body. In particular, they believed there was too much phlegm in the body, either descending down from the brain or up from the womb, as the case may be. In about 800 BC, Homer was the first to use the word asthma in writing that still exists today. In his epic poem, The Iliad, he describes Zeus waking up as the Greeks are trying to push a line of Trojans back and finding Hector, the leader of the Trojans, breathing painfully and vomiting blood. The word Homer used to describe Hector's labored breathing was asthmati. Apparently, the word was used at the time to describe noisy, labored breathing in general. The earliest treatments for asthma focused on living a balanced life in terms of diet, rest, and social activities, and of course, praying to the gods for mercy. When that didn't work, more bizarre treatments were attempted, such as eating the lungs of foxes, bloodletting, avoiding any source of heat, or, as Aetius horribly recommended in about 500 AD, multiple cauterizing burns to the chest to remove the causative humors. The ancient Egyptians described their treatment of asthma by inhaling the fumes of dried and crushed herbs, such as tobacco, datura stramonium, black henbane, and belladonna. Astute botanists who are listening to this podcast, and I'm sure there are many, will have picked up that tobacco, datura stramonium, henbane, and belladonna all belong to a family of plants known as the solanaceae, which are sometimes also called the deadly nightshades. 
These plants produce alkaloids, which block the effects of the parasympathetic nervous system. Since the parasympathetic nervous system has a role in asthma, it was not surprising that these plants gave some relief to asthma sufferers. Today we use powerful synthetic drugs to block the parasympathetic system in order to help asthma sufferers and to help those with dangerously slow heart rates, but we'll discuss those in a different podcast. Interestingly, up until about the 1950s, which was about the time we realized that smoking causes cancer, specially formulated asthma cigarettes, which burned many of these plants, were a popular treatment. For example, an 1890s advertisement glowed that asthma cigarettes were, quote, agreeable to use, certain in their effect, harmless in their action, and safely smoked by ladies and children, end quote. This was despite the fact that it wasn't uncommon for such cigarettes to include cannabis, potash, and even arsenic. Despite much better remedies becoming available, asthma cigarettes persisted in some circles until well into the 1980s. Adrenaline. As we noted in the previous podcast, All About Adrenaline, adrenaline was discovered in 1901 by Jokichi Takamini. And shortly after, Solomon Solis Cohen was the first to administer it therapeutically to asthmatics, with great success. From that point on, adrenaline became a life-saving drug for asthmatic sufferers. However, adrenaline is a very powerful drug that also has potent and undesirable effects on the heart and blood vessels. It certainly helped asthma sufferers, but it wasn't a pleasant experience, and it could potentially be disastrous for those with pre-existing high blood pressure or weak hearts. Ephedrine. There's a shrub that grows in China called Ma Huang. It's an herbaceous perennial which grows to be about a meter tall. It smells like a pine tree, and the dried green stems boiled in water to make a bitter tea have been used in traditional Chinese medicine for about 5,000 years. There are about 45 different species of this plant around the world, but the one in China is particularly potent. The tea was traditionally prescribed as a cure for coughs, colds, flu, fever, nasal congestion, and, of course, for asthma, too. In the 1880s, a Japanese chemist named Nagayoshi Nagai took an interest in studying Ma Huang. Nagai had studied Western medicine at a Dutch school in Nagasaki and then worked in Berlin for 12 years as a chemist. After returning to Japan, he took an interest in applying the new process of pharmacological investigation to traditional remedies like Ma Huang, which Japan had been importing from China since the late 1500s. In 1885, Nagai isolated the active component from the plant. The English name for Ma Huang was ephedra, and Nagai called his extract ephedrine. Years later, the Germans, perhaps in communication with Nagai, isolated the same substance. In 1893, Nagai distilled ephedrine into a more powerful version, methamphetamine. This started a widespread epidemic of amphetamine abuse in Japan that ravaged the country, killing millions. Actually, not really. Following Nagai's discovery of methamphetamine, nothing happened. In fact, for several decades, the discovery was entirely forgotten, even though amphetamines eventually became essential drugs that influenced the course of world history. Decades later, in the 1920s, two researchers at the University of Peking named Ko Kui Chen and Carl Schmidt independently recreated Nagai's work. Like Nagai, Chen and Schmidt had an interest in the pharmacological properties of traditional Chinese remedies. Completely ignorant of Nagai's work, they started studying the effects of Ma Huang and noted some of its interesting properties. In particular, they noticed it was an effective bronchodilator that had several important advantages over adrenaline. The first was that, unlike adrenaline, it could be taken by mouth and so didn't require injections. Ephedrine also caused a longer-lasting bronchodilation than adrenaline. It was also much more stable than adrenaline, which rapidly oxidizes into inert compounds in the presence of light or heat. Finally, Unlike adrenaline, the extract didn't cause deadly ventricular dysrhythmias with repeated administrations. Unlike the earlier German and Japanese reports, Chen and Schmidt's 1924 paper on ephedrine in the Journal of the Society of Experimental Pharmacology and Therapeutics, 
published in English, went viral, and everyone wanted some. By the middle of the 1930s, ephedrine had become firmly entrenched as the first line of treatment for asthma. However, as ephedrine became widely used throughout the world as both a preventative agent and an acute treatment for bronchospasm, doctors realized that continued use of the drug required gradually increasing doses as the body became habituated to its effects. As doses gradually crept up, researchers became aware of two significant drawbacks to the drug. The first was that the widespread release of adrenaline and noradrenaline it produced throughout the body had negative side effects such as dangerous hypertension and a reduced ability to urinate, both of which could lead to kidney failure. The second drawback was related to the fact that ephedrine easily crosses the blood-brain barrier. As patients took increasingly higher doses of ephedrine, they began to experience euphoria, but they also began to display not only anxiety, but also restlessness and insomnia, which sometimes progressed to intermittent bouts of paranoia and psychosis, which could be associated with suicidal or homicidal tendencies. If that reminds you of the effects of crystal meth, it's because ephedrine is structurally almost identical to methamphetamine. In fact, the only difference between the two is that ephedrine has a single hydroxyl group that methamphetamine does not. This hydroxyl group can easily be removed, which today makes ephedrine a highly sought-after precursor in the illicit production of amphetamines and crystal meth, which is probably the most abused hard drug in the world today. Finally, the world has caught up with Nagai's remarkable discovery from 1893. In what is perhaps a tragic instance of pharmacological karma, the descendants of the original German and Japanese scientists that discovered ephedrine were ordered to ingest mixtures of methamphetamine plus cocaine in order to decrease their fatigue and increase their aggression and willingness to take risks when they fought as soldiers in the Second World War. Kamikaze pilots received high doses of these drugs before their suicidal missions, and German soldiers stayed awake and alert for days on end, eating what they called tank chocolate. It was the extreme use of amphetamines that allowed the 1940 Blitzkrieg, during which the Nazis pushed through Belgium and into France in three days, claiming more land in 100 hours than they had taken in all of their campaigns in World War I. If you want to spend a weekend with a really interesting book, I'd recommend you pick up Blitzed, Drugs in Nazi Germany by Norman Oller. It really is a remarkable story. For our purposes, though, we need to know ephedrine was an improvement over adrenaline as a treatment for asthma, but the amphetamine-like effects were undesirable, and they caused scientists to continue to search for a better treatment. Isoprenaline. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, the synthetic sympathomimetics synephrine and phenylephrine were developed by the pharmaceutical firm C.H. Boringerson in Ingelheim, in Germany, in partnership with the Department of Pharmacology at the nearby Vienna University. The drugs were found to have very powerful cardiovascular effects. Realizing that you could tailor artificial drugs to emphasize or de-emphasize certain characteristics of adrenaline made pharmaceutical scientists hopeful that they could alter the structure of adrenaline to create different drugs that would de-emphasize the cardiovascular effects of adrenaline and instead isolate its bronchodilator effects. The Viennese scientists invented a novel device cobbled together from flasks, pumps, and pistons, which created a breath-to-breath -breath graph of how much gas was going into the lungs of a test subject. They published their method, and it became a popular tool for measuring bronchial reactions to different drugs. Dogs were attached to the machine, and they were administered an already familiar drug called pilocarpine, which was known to cause bronchoconstriction. The researchers watched the bronchoconstriction occur on their graph, and then they began administering the various molecular reconfigurations of adrenaline they had made to the dogs to see if those reconfigurations had any bronchodilatory effects. In one reconfiguration of adrenaline which they'd created, they had replaced a section of its atoms with a similar 
but not identical configuration of other atoms called an isopropyl group. And this version of adrenaline with the isopropyl group in it was called isoprenaline. On November 18, 1938, the German chemists at the University of Vienna began experiments with nebulized isoprenaline and found it had the same bronchodilatory effects as adrenaline, only at one-tenth of the dose, which was great because it meant the cardiovascular effects of the drug wouldn't be as strong. To ensure that their canine results were transferable to humans, they enlisted the help of a colleague of theirs, a human this time, who had asthma. In our modern era of meticulously careful drug testing and Byzantine layers of ethics approval, this is hard to imagine. But they basically just grabbed a bunch of the new drug off the bench, gave it to their colleague and said, let us know if it works. The mind boggles. But it worked. Further tests in an asthma ward of a local hospital showed great results and isoprenaline was introduced in Germany in 1940, at the beginning of the Second World War, as a new drug for asthma in humans. For obvious reasons, the drug didn't spread to the UK or America until after the war, but when it did, the World Health Organization endorsed the generic name isoprenaline for worldwide use. Americans, of course, called it something else. In America, the drug is known as isoproteranol. Nebulized isoprenaline became the drug of choice for treating bronchospasm and for decades was found in every ER around the world. It was the one drug that doctors reached for when they were faced with a critical asthmatic patient. In all likelihood, your parents or grandparents or perhaps their friends were treated with it. The Pressurized Meter Dose Inhaler, or PMDI. However, one of the problems with isoprenaline was that it was very short-acting, so asthmatics often needed repeated treatments, and it was difficult, for example, for them to get through the night without having to wake up for repeated dosings. Another problem with isoprenaline was with its administration. Getting it aerosolized so the patients could inhale it was difficult to do with the technology of the day, but it was critically important if the drug was to be effective. If isoprenaline was injected intramuscularly or intravenously, it still had very strong positive chronotropic effects, which meant it caused significant tachycardia. After isoprenaline's introduction in the mid-1940s, the only way to administer it was through a cumbersome and fragile glass squeeze bulb nebulizer, similar in design to the old-fashioned perfume spray bottles that your grandmother uses. It wasn't optimal, but it was still an improvement on adrenaline. In the 1950s, the squeeze bulb administration of isoproteranol was widespread, but still frustrating. By chance, one day, a 13-year-old American asthma sufferer asked her dad, why can't they just put my asthma medicine into a spray can? Serendipitously, her father just happened to be George Mason, the president of Riker Laboratories, which just happened to have a pharmaceutical development laboratory. George, the father, instructed his staff to see if putting isoprenaline into a spray can was a feasible idea. Of course, one of the problems they had to address was that when you press down on a spray can, it just keeps spraying. Recognizing that this would cause an epidemic of isoprenaline overdoses, they focused on a spray can that would deliver only one metered dose at a time for patients to inhale. Remarkably, they developed a metered dose inhaler and they delivered it to the market within two years from start to finish. Again, something that would be unimaginable today. And thus, the pressurized metered dose inhaler, or the MDI, which most patients simply call a puffer, was introduced to the world, and the first drug it puffed out to grateful asthmatics everywhere was isoprenaline. In time, as better bronchodilators were discovered, a story we'll get to in just a minute, isoprenaline fell out of favor as a bronchodilator, but we still use it intravenously today for the tachycardic side effects that the doctors of our parents and grandparents found so frustrating. We use it now, among other indications, as a last-ditch drug for patients who are profoundly bradycardic and not responding to transcutaneous pacing. It's rare now for any paramedics, except interfacility critical care paramedics, to use the drug, but it still exists. 
I only used it once or twice as a critical care paramedic when I was working in Toronto, and in Queensland, where I live now, for example, only the highest level of flight paramedics are allowed to use isoprenaline, but only if it has already been started by the sending institution and only after consultation with their medical control. I'd say that's a fairly common scenario for when and how paramedics run isoprenaline today. So that's all I'll say about it. Despite the great success that isoprenaline initially had over adrenaline, there were still concerns about it. As it became a more widespread therapy in the 1960s, subsequent to the introduction of the metered dose inhaler to deliver it, it was linked with a large spike in deaths in at least six different countries. However, other countries that were also using isoprenaline did not experience this dramatic rise in deaths, and there's a continuing heated debate in epidemiological circles about what came to be called the inhaled beta agonist hypothesis. Was isoprenaline killing patients? We worried it might be. It's a deeper hole than I want to go down in this podcast, but look in the show notes on paramedicine.com for the 1998 Pearson Hensley article if you want to know more. Suffice it to say that isoprenaline had its critics and the medical community continued to search for a better treatment. Adrenaline to Salbutamol Adrenaline was discovered in 1901, but it took until 1948 for scientists to realize that adrenaline acted on at least two distinct receptors. It was in that year that Raymond Alquist published his historical article in the American Journal of Physiology, outlining this discovery and introducing the terms alpha and beta receptors to the world for the first time. Almost 20 years after that, in 1967, Lanz et al. published in Nature magazine their discovery that there were actually two different beta receptors, and that only one of those beta receptors, the beta-2 receptor, was the one responsible for bronchodilation. Now the chase was on, because this led researchers to hope that they could find agonists that were selective to beta-2 receptors, which would hopefully allow them to develop a powerful bronchodilator with none of the beta-1 inotropic and chronotropic effects that plagued adrenaline and, to a lesser extent, isoprenaline. This is about the time that Sir David Jack began working in pharmacology for the Glaxo company. Glaxo had begun as a rather unglamorous producer of powdered infant formula. Glaxo builds bunny babies, as the ads used to say. But they became a tentative entrant into the pharmaceutical development industry as they began to produce generic copies of drugs that had already been discovered by others. Sir Jack had been hired as the head of research for Glaxo in 1961. His ambitious goal was to create treatments for the most common ailments plaguing society, and he turned his team to the concern of asthma. Affecting approximately 1 in 20 people and with no cure, asthma was, and still is, a debilitating disease that literally takes one's breath away. Operating from a small laboratory in the small town of Ware, Sir Jack created and led what is arguably one of the most medically influential and financially successful groups of pharmacological research scientists in history. His team went back to adrenaline and, like the Viennese chemists in the 1930s, started taking it apart and rebuilding it with slight variations over and over again, testing each time to see if they could build a better bronchodilator. Imagine, if you will, taking apart the same small group of about seven Lego blocks and rebuilding them with slightly different blocks each time, taking one block out and trying dozens of different ones, and then taking another out and replacing it with dozens of different ones again, and all the time testing to see if what you built had the effects that you wanted. Now imagine that it takes about a week every time you make a single change, and you do it over 100 times over about two years. That's what the Glaxo team did under Sir Jack's leadership until they finally came up with a variation on adrenaline that was over 500 times more potent at the beta-2 receptor in the lungs than the beta-1 receptor in the heart. Jackpot.
The drug was named salbutamol, generically, but in 1969, when they invented it, Glaxo called it Ventolin, and it was absolutely revolutionary. It was one of the first superstar drugs ever, and today, the product and its various successors still earns GlaxoSmithKline, as the company is now called, over $1 billion a year. And yes, that's billion with a B. They didn't stop with salbutamol, however. Salbutamol is a short-acting beta agonist. It only lasts about four hours, which, like isoprenolin, isn't long enough to make it through the night. So once they discovered salbutamol, they continued to deconstruct and reconstruct the salbutamol molecule the way they originally had with adrenaline. By fiddling with a nitrogen substituent of the molecule, they eventually discovered a form of salbutamol that lasted up to 12 hours. The generic name for that drug is Salmeterol, and Glaxo marketed it as Cerevent. Salmeterol is still in widespread use today, and you'll see that many of your patients are taking it regularly. As paramedics, however, we use the shorter-acting Salbutamol as a bronchodilator, among other drugs, to treat our asthmatic patients. Sir Jack and his team went on to develop other important drugs as well. In 1972, they introduced beclomethazone dipropionate, an anti-inflammatory steroid inhalant launched as becotide, as well as fluticasone propionate, a synthetic corticosteroid which is inhaled for asthma, but also can be used as a cream for eczema and psoriasis. These drugs are called asthma preventers because if they are used regularly, they prevent asthma attacks from happening in the first place. The combination of salmeterol and fluticasone propionate into one inhaler, called Advair or Ceratide, that patients can take twice daily, has finally brought a disease that has plagued humanity since the beginnings of our recorded history under reasonable control for millions of sufferers around the world. Salbutamol. So much for history. Let's turn now and take a closer look at the drug salbutamol in detail. As paramedics, how do we use this drug? By now you should be well acquainted with salbutamol's mechanism of action. It's a highly selective, short-acting, beta-2 receptor agonist that causes bronchodilation for up to four hours. You might wonder how stimulating beta-2 receptors alleviates bronchospasm in our lungs. The physiology of this is actually quite interesting. If you're aware of how muscles in our body contract, you know that calcium is an important agent in facilitating muscle contraction. Muscles have two proteins called actin and myosin. These two proteins slide over each other during contraction. That's how muscles shorten. Most of the time, however, one of these proteins, the myosin, is covered by another protein called tropomyosin. When myosin is covered by tropomyosin, muscles can't contract. This is where calcium comes into play. Calcium causes the tropomyosin to be retracted from the myosin, allowing it to interact with actin, the other protein it attaches to, which thus allows the muscle to be able to contract. So activation of beta-2 receptors causes a chemical cascade of events to happen inside muscle cells, which results in calcium that is in the smooth muscle cell either being ejected from the cell or bound up. Beta-2 activation, therefore, results in lower levels of free calcium in the cell. Low levels of calcium in the cell make it more difficult for the bronchial smooth muscles to contract, which results in bronchodilation. Delivery of salbutamol is inhalational, either by metered dose inhaler or by nebulized mask. MDIs are generally the preferred delivery method because the particles they produce, which are inhaled by the patient, are much smaller than the particles produced by nebulizers. The smaller particles from the MDIs penetrate further into the lungs than the larger particles from nebulizers, and therefore, less drug is required to produce the same effect. That's one reason we generally try to avoid using nebulizers and prefer to use an MDI. 
One instance in which we sometimes will make an exception to this rule is when we arrive at an asthmatic patient in extremis who has been repeatedly taking salbutamol by their own MDI. At that point, they will be quite explicit that they don't want more salbutamol from your MDI. They want what they will describe as the real stuff, which means a nebulizer. There's a strongly reassuring placebo effect for many patients to getting salbutamol by nebulizer. And so long as it's not contraindicated, I generally go ahead and give it. It's easier than arguing, and it saves their breath. MDIs typically deliver 100 micrograms per actuation, which means per puff. And the typical adult dose is 4 to 8 puffs every 20 minutes for up to 4 hours. Then every 1 to 4 hours is needed. In children less than 12 years old, we use less of the drug. A normal dose for a pediatric MDI is 90 micrograms per actuation instead of 100, but we still give 4 to 8 puffs every 20 minutes or so for an hour, as opposed to 4 hours, and then again every 1 to 4 hours is needed. It's best to use a spacer or aero chamber for the delivery of salbutamol in both kids and adults, otherwise the spray can land and bind to the oropharynx, which decreases the amount of drug actually delivered to the lungs. Spacers keep the nebulized particles floating until they're properly inhaled. We never reuse spacers in different patients because of the risk of contamination. So when you leave the patient in the hospital, just leave the spacer you used with them. Up to 90% of people with asthma inhalers do not use them correctly which increases their risk of hospitalization by up to 50%. Surprisingly, depressingly, this is also true in asthmatic patients who have been using their inhalers for years, most of whom are absolutely confident they are using theirs correctly. In fact, in one study, six out of seven patients who were absolutely confident that they knew how to take their asthma medications were discovered to be doing it incorrectly when supervised. Further compounding the problem is the depressing statistic that somewhere between 30 to 85% of healthcare professionals, regardless of their actual profession, are not able to demonstrate correct inhaler use either. That's almost as bad as the patients. So we, as paramedics, have two responsibilities. The first is to make sure that we are using inhalers correctly. And the second is to use the opportunity our presence affords to explain to our patients how to use MDIs properly so that they end up using them properly too, which will not only help with their asthma, but can also decrease the amount they have to call us by up to 50%. The first point to be aware of is that you have to shake the salbutamol MDI well before you use it to distribute the medication properly. And you should prime the MDI by releasing several puffs before you begin to administer it to the patient. It's also often necessary to prime the spacer. Standard plastic spacers will carry an electrostatic charge. Some spacers are specifically designed to be anti-static and they don't develop a charge. And any disposable cardboard spacers won't carry a charge either. But spacers that do carry an electrostatic charge will require some preparation before you use them. If you're not sure if the chamber is anti-static or not, just assume that it is and prepare it properly. Before I describe how to prepare the chambers, let me tell you why we do it at all so that you're convinced it's important. When small salbutamol particles are aerosolized into an aerochamber, any electrostatic charge in that chamber will cause the salbutamol particles to adhere to the chamber walls, thus making the drug particles unavailable to the patient. In order to overcome this, it's necessary to prime the chamber by releasing a whole bunch of salbutamol into it to overcome the static charge. How much salbutamol should you spray into the chamber to overcome the charge? We're not exactly sure, but the manufacturers recommend that you spray 10 puffs into the chamber just to be safe. So if you spray 10 puffs from the MDI into the chamber before you begin to administer it to the patient, then you'll have more than adequately primed the MDI and you will also have properly primed the aerochamber. 
The chambers should be washed every week in warm soapy water and then left to air dry because drying them with a towel will create more electrostatic charge. They should be replaced about every year, so if the patient is presenting with their own chamber, it would be good to ask them how old it is. If it's over a year, tell them to throw it out and get a new one. Usually, I leave the puffer with the patient along with the spacer, but if your service doesn't allow that, then you should wash the MDI in warm soapy water before you use it again on another patient. The best way to deliver the drug is to ask the patient to inhale slowly with a single breath after each puff of the MDI, and then ask the patient to hold their breath for about five seconds at the end of their inhalation. For each puff of the MDI, the patient should take four breaths this way to ensure that they've inhaled all of the drug that's in the spacer. I've seen paramedics spray three or more puffs into the spacer before getting the patient to inhale instead of just the recommended one puff. When I asked them why they did this, they said that they wanted to make sure that the patient got the greatest possible amount of medication. Unfortunately, even though it's a well-intentioned idea, it's a mistake that actually makes things worse, and you shouldn't do this. Let me tell you why. If you spray several puffs into the spacer before the patient inhales, the atomized particles of salbutamol can agglomerate together and then drop out of the air onto the chamber, making them unavailable for inhalation. So, paradoxically, more sprays means less drug. So just spray it once. So to summarize all of that, here's how you deliver salbutamol using a metered dose inhaler. First, shake the MDI several times and then connect it to a spacer and initially spray 10 sprays into the spacer. Ask the patient to sit upright if they're able and this will maximize their ability to ventilate deeply. Then have the patient take the chamber connector into their mouth or firmly hold the mask over their face, depending on how the chamber is built, and spray only one additional puff of the MDI into the chamber. Have the patient take a deep breath and hold it for at least five seconds, if they can, and then have them exhale. They should take a total of four breaths for each puff of the MDI. Once they've taken four breaths, administer another single puff into the chamber and repeat the process until you've delivered as much drug as required. Explain to the patient what you are doing and why so that you can help ensure that they are using their equipment properly, which will help them avoid needing to call us again. When done, you should ideally be leaving the MDI and the spacer with the patient. There are lots of good videos on the internet showing how to do this properly. The website nationalasthma.org.au has some good ones. Look for the how-to videos under the Living with Asthma tab. Now let's talk about administering salbutamol via a gas-driven nebulizer mask. The dose of salbutamol that we use in nebulizers is usually 2.5 to 5 milligrams every 20 minutes. Because salbutamol for nebulizers usually comes as 2.5 milligrams of drug in 2.5 milliliters of fluid, that means we either put one container of drug into the mask and add 2.5 milliliters of saline, or we just put two containers in for a total of 5 milligrams of drugs, and we nebulize that. In kids less than 12 years old, the recommended dose is... 0.15 milligrams per kilogram with a minimum starting dose of 2.5 milligrams, then 0.15 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram to a maximum of 10 milligrams every one to four hours as needed. Whew. I'll be honest though. Even though no manufacturer recommends this in writing, every pediatric hospital I've ever been in just runs continuous salbutamol on really sick kids. I think their reasoning is that kids have strong hearts and they can handle the alpha and beta 1 side effects. I'm not telling you that you should do that. I'm just telling you what I've seen and you can draw your own conclusions. As always, you should follow the CPGs of the service you work for. Be careful though 
about using nebulizers if you think your patient has an infection or disease that can be transmitted by respiratory droplets, such as the cold or the flu, mumps, whooping cough, rubella, or tuberculosis. Generally, if your asthmatic patient is sick and having an acute on chronic attack because of the underlying cold or flu, then I'd start with the MDI. If you have to switch to the nebulizer for an infectious patient, then you and your partner, don't forget about your partner up in the driver's seat, should be putting on a properly fitted N95 mask to protect yourself. When you're done the call, make sure you wash your pen, your stethoscope, your glasses, your holster, and anything else that the nebulized droplets might have settled on that you could later touch including the stretcher and other surfaces in the back of the ambulance. Otherwise, they might act as what we call fulmites. Fulmites are objects that carry germs or disease. Diseases that spread by droplet transmission, fecal-oral transmission, or contact transmission often do so via fulmites. This is the reason why you need to wash the puffer in warm soapy water if you keep it and intend to use it on another patient. You don't want it to become a fulmite. Fulmite transmission is the other reason why we tend to prefer using an MDI instead of a nebulizer. In fact, I remember during the SARS crisis in the early 2000s in Toronto, we had our nebulizers completely taken off of the ambulances because we were doing everything we could to cut the vectors of transmission. The bottom line, and the one you should keep in mind, is that nebulizers are dirty and they increase the chance of disease transmission from your patient to others. They also mean a lot of unnecessary cleaning of your ambulance. Interestingly, there's another indication for salbutamol, another instance where we use it that has nothing to do with bronchospasm or even shortness of breath at all. Do you know what it is? It's hyperkalemia. If we have reason to suspect that our patient has high levels of potassium in their blood, we can use salbutamol to temporarily fix that, regardless of whether they are short of breath or not. High levels of potassium can occur if patients are in kidney failure, or if they have hypoaldosteronism or rhabdomyolysis or trauma, and hyperkalemia can be fatal. In fact, Potassium is the lethal drug they still inject into prisoners to stop their hearts, even though, as an aside, it's so inhumane a way to induce death that it's illegal for veterinarians to euthanize animals using this method. So, of course, the presence of hyperkalemia in your patient is something that needs to be addressed urgently. We can usually tell if a patient is hyperkalemic by looking for characteristic changes on their 12-lead ECG. Exactly how we do that is beyond the scope of this podcast, but it's not a subtle sign, and it's something you should absolutely know about if your scope of practice includes the interpretation of 12-lead ECGs. Go look it up. How does salbutamol lower serum potassium levels? Well, like other beta-2 adrenergic agonists, salbutamol stimulates the sodium-potassium pump in our liver and muscle cells. Remember, that the sodium-potassium pump moves sodium out of cells and potassium in, and as a result, ends up driving more potassium into the cells and out of our bloodstream. This lowers the serum level of potassium and thus keeps it away from our heart where it's most dangerous. On a related note, if you have reason to believe that your patient might have very, very low potassium, then obviously using an agent that can lower their serum potassium levels even more is something we have to avoid. There's an hereditary condition called hypokalemic periodic paralysis, which, as the name implies, has low levels of serum potassium as a part of its profile. If you do come across one of these rare cases, be cautious about administering salbutamol because it can dangerously lower their serum potassium even more. Salbutamol is also believed to increase blood sugar levels, although this usually doesn't present much of a problem for most patients. In the rare setting of the dangerously hyperglycemic asthmatic, you should monitor their blood sugar levels, especially with prolonged administration of salbutamol, but generally, this isn't a very big issue for us as paramedics. Salbutamol, actually, 
is generally quite a safe drug, and like adrenaline, in the setting of deadly bronchospasm, there are no contraindications to its use. Remember, airway and breathing come before glucose. However, it's good to keep in mind that salbutamol still does have some alpha-1 and beta-1 activity, so you must watch your patient's blood pressure, heart rate, their ECG, their levels of agitation, and watch for tremors. The shaky, anxious, tachycardic, hypertensive patient who's throwing off frequent multiform PVCs might be that way because of too much salbutamol. I've seen patients like this who have been on their salbutamol nebulizer continuously for hours before they call us. Be cautious about administering even more salbutamol to these patients, especially if they have a weak heart. The agitation that salbutamol can cause comes about because beta agonists can cause increased central nervous system depolarizations. For that reason, we're often cautious about giving the drug to patients who have seizure disorders. Although, again, in the setting of deadly bronchospasm, the airway comes first. For that same reason, we're cautious about giving salbutamol to patients who have already taken other psychostimulants, such as cocaine, amphetamine, ephedrine, MDMA, or ecstasy, or even, rarely, excessive amounts of common agents, such as tobacco or coffee. Alcohol withdrawal can have similar psychostimulants effects, and salbutamol should be used with caution in this setting. If you're forced to use it, make sure that you are monitoring your patient closely and discontinue the drug if their vitals or their behavior become dangerous. Another particularly ominous side effect of salbutamol is that in about 10% of patients, it can have the paradoxical effect of increasing bronchospasm and exacerbating your patient's dyspnea. Sometimes, if your patient is getting worse, it's hard to determine if it's because of their underlying disease or because of a paradoxical effect to the salbutamol. Certainly, if your patient suddenly gets much, much worse as soon as you start administering the salbutamol, you should keep this complication in mind as one possible cause of their rapid deterioration. Also worrisome is the fact that some patients can have immediate hypersensitivity reactions characterized by urticaria, angioedema, rash, and possibly even full-blown anaphylaxis. If this occurs, no matter what the drug, you obviously discontinue the causative agent and treat the patient symptomatically. You should also be aware that salbutamol can act as what we call a tocolytic. A tocolytic is an agent that shuts down labor contractions. Remember that salbutamol sequesters intracellular calcium away, making it harder for the bronchi to constrict. It does the same thing in the muscles of the womb, halting all the contractions of labor. So salbutamol acts as a tocolytic, but it's not at all a good one, so we don't use salbutamol in order to intentionally slow or stop labor in pregnant patients. There are other, better drugs for that. What you need to be mindful of is that if you have a patient who is in active, healthy labor, then you should avoid giving salbutamol because it can interfere with or even stop that process. However, once again, if mom is in severe, life-threatening bronchospastic asthma, then salbutamol is the drug of choice, and so we give it. Salbutamol has some important drug interactions, many of which are similar to adrenaline, as they are drugs which are quite similar to each other. Since salbutamol is a beta agonist, beta blockers that the patient is taking can possibly interfere with its ability to bronchodilate their lungs. So don't be surprised if the asthmatic patient you're treating, who is on beta blockers, seems to be resistant to the effects of the drug, especially if it's a non-selective beta blocker. Monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which can decrease your body's ability to break down salbutamol, can enhance its adverse or toxic effects because the drug ends up staying in your body and exerting its effects for longer. Drugs that prolong the cardiac QT interval can have an increased effect if combined with salbutamol. The list of drugs that can do this is long and includes 
antibiotics, antifungals, antivirals, antiarrhythmics, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and antihistamines. Several paramedic drugs can do this as well, such as amiodarone, haloperidol, droperidol, and ondansetron. So be careful about administering these in combination with salbutamol, especially if the patient already has a long QT interval. If the QT interval is increased too much, your patient might begin to show runs of VTAC, and these can progress to full torsade de point. In this case, cardioversion or an infusion of IV magnesium sulfate is the treatment of choice. If these don't work, you might be surprised to hear that we might fall back on an old friend to increase the heart rate, which decreases the QT interval and can hopefully terminate the torsades. That old friend? Isoprenaline. How's that for coming full circle? So with that, we'll end our look at salbutamol. This is going to be a drug that you use a lot, and it's a lifesaver. Let me tell you one last story, because I know I'm going to hear about it if I only mention one of my two daughters in this episode. When my oldest daughter, Denise, was born, I had almost a year off of work for parental leave, and I happily forgot all about paramedicine. When I returned to work, I was doing a special shift on standby all night, outside of an emergency department that had just closed permanently. Interestingly, it was the same hospital that my brother and I had been born in all those years ago. The worry was that people might show up to the closed doors, panic, and not know what to do. So they parked an ambulance outside all night with one paramedic in it. That was me. On my very first shift back, after a year off, I was sitting in the front seat, reading over my clinical practice guidelines for the first time in a very, very long time, and realizing I probably should have done that before I went back to work, when a car came careening into the drop-off zone behind me, ending up with its wheels half on the curb. I saw a panicked mother open the back door and lift out an apparently lifeless 10-year-old. She saw the closed doors of the ER just as I yelled, over here, and she came running over. I set up the child in the back of the ambulance, and as the mom told me about his history of asthma, I set up a nebulizer of salbutamol and called for a transport unit to come lights and sirens for a pre-arrest child. They arrived about eight minutes later to see a happy, wide-awake child breathing easily through a mask of nebulized salbutamol. Thank you, Sir David Jack. You saved another one. And that is all about salbutamol. I hope this podcast has helped you to understand not only the fascinating history of salbutamol, but also how it works at a cellular level and how we use it as paramedics to help save lives and reduce suffering every day in the field. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Kolbeck, and you can reach me via contact at paramedicine.com or you can visit the paramedicine.com website and join us there. There's a full transcript of this podcast with references that you can download to help you to study. I'd love to hear your comments, questions, criticisms, commendations, and corrections. Until next time, keep on studying, keep on caring, and keep safe out there.